Well, good morning. It is certainly great to see faces, especially yours, as much as I can see of them. And uh, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And today our text will be Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37, as we continue our series of messages throughout the book of Acts, which I'm finding to be, at a personal level, a great blessing. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the earth, or made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we look at this uh, passage in the book of Acts today, we are very aware of how much we need your spirit to show us the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, who is truly uh, uh, our wonderful Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And we pray that as we spend this time in your word, you will write it upon our hearts so that we may live it out in flesh and blood so that our triune God would receive glory and honor and praise and will be exalted. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Once more, 
as we're looking at the book of Acts and as uh, Dave talked about in uh, the uh, call to worship and at other times even in the confession, there's a huge emphasis upon the corporate nature of Christianity, upon the community. There are, biblically speaking, no Lone Ranger saints. There are, not to be according to the scriptures, people who uh, see Christianity only as an individualistic, personal relationship with Christ that has no implications in terms of community. And here's why we emphasize that, because this passage emphasizes that. The very same act that sets you in union with Christ also sets you in union with the body. And if you're not able to be with the body, you should miss that. You should know that. You should feel that. People who choose not to be regularly connected to the body are missing authentic and genuine Christianity. Uh, and so as he focuses upon the corporate life of the New Covenant community, two things stand out. Number one, they had a holy boldness. They had an uncommon boldness. You have to consider the context in which these people were living out their faith and they were a lot less friendly to them than they are in the United States of America today. Uh, it was a horrible context. You have to understand the Roman Empire. You have to understand the oppression of that. And to live out your faith in that context was incredibly challenged. And yet, these are ignorant and unlearned and very common men. And yet, what marked them, what made them stand out, and we'll see this over and over again, was they had a holy boldness. Uh, they weren't driven by fear. Second thing that stands out is they had a radical generosity. Radical generosity. These people got it. They were woke in terms of the gospel. Let me put it that way. They saw the gospel. They saw what God and Christ had done for them. And because of that, they were willing to get out of themselves and give to those around them. And so Christianity is not only um, a community thing, but it is driven by a gospel that causes you to want to minister to the brokenness and needs of those around you. So that's the real thing. And so what I want to do is in this time together, we see the new Israel, the fellowship of the believers in prayer and worship and care for one another is extremely highlighted in this passage. And also one other thing that you're going to see in this passage as we dig a little deeper is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst is continually affirmed and reaffirmed. So there are three truths or ideas I want us to focus on this morning. Number one, we see a prayer for boldness. Number two, we'll see the filling of the Holy Spirit. And number three, that will ensue in a radical generosity. So how about you jumping in with me now as we look at this. First, what are the marks of prayer in this passage which bring down such power into these disciples? I'm glad you asked. First, there's a connection of their heart weaknesses with the attributes of God. Let me tell you something that will help you a great deal in your Christian life. Study the nature and attributes of God. Get to know who your God is. 
And that will shape and affect your prayer life. It will shape and affect uh, Calvin in his institute says he doesn't know what comes first, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of self. But you can't really know who you are until you know who your creator is and until you know what he's like. And so they brought their weaknesses. It's clear that they understood they were frail and fallen and they connected with the attributes of God. Let me talk about that for a moment. There's a great deal of time spent reflecting on and praising God for his greatness and power. Now, I imagine your prayer life is a lot like mine. Sometimes when I pray, it's out of emergency and stress, and I don't give a lot of air time to how great God is and how wonderful and how holy and how gracious. I just jump straight to my petition. But sometimes it is worth, let's say most times, it is worth reflecting on and praising God for his greatness and power. They especially concentrate on the, his, his sovereignty, his control of all things. In other words, they don't simply ask for boldness, but they actually cure themselves, as it were, or deliver themselves of their fear by meditating on the attribute of God most antithetical to their fear. Fear is a big problem and in our world and culture today. I was thinking last night, it feels like the 60s to me all over again. I feel like I've lived through this same kind of cultural chaos that happened during the 60s. Uh, 1963, I was 10 years old, so I wasn't really astute about it, but I lived through it. And I saw it all happen in the upheaval and uh, a lot of uh, cultural change. And so there's a lot of chaos, and there's a lot that would stir any person that has any sense, sense of fear. And so, and if there was anybody who righteously, from a human point of view, ought to be afraid, it would be these people. But they actually deliver themselves from their fear by meditating on the attribute of God most antithetical to fear, and that is the sovereignty of God. Do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you really? Because if you really do, you really have no basis for fear. What can anybody do to you? What can anybody take away from you? Nothing, really. Which leads me to talk a little bit more about the sovereignty of God. When we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible does clearly teach that God is sovereign, that he's a great king, and he rules in and over all that he has made. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's decree, and all that he has decreed will most certainly and ultimately come to pass. God's will of decree cannot be delayed, detoured, or thwarted. It is immutable. It is unchangeable. It is fixed. God is sovereign over everything, nature, nations, animals, angels, the devil, demons, wonderful people, wicked people, even disease and death. God's love and mercy and grace and justice and wrath are all sovereign and are administered according to his decretive will. To steal a line from St. Augustine, the will of God is the necessity of all things. Put another way, what God wills will happen, and what happens is according to God's will. 
This is what the Bible means by God's will of decree. Ephesians 1.11 teaches us God's will of decree. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works out everything, the big picture, the uh, minute details and all points in between according to his wise and good sovereign persons. Matthew tells us in chapter 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. God micromanages. The sovereignty is meticulous in our lives. I'm not saying I understand it all. I'm not saying I feel good about things that happen to me that I don't understand. I'm not saying that either. But I'm telling you, something that delivers me from fear taking over my heart is to recognize he's got the whole world in his hands. And he's working out his will as he will. God's sovereignty sometimes is... Uh, full of irony, and it stretches the boundaries of our comprehension. In this very passage, we see, for truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Every grief and woe in our lives must be interpreted and understood through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For there we see the problem of evil addressed not theoretically by pointing us to a sovereign God who works out all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Shocking as it may sound, the most heinous act of evil ever perpetrated upon the face of the earth, the murder of the incarnate Son of God, took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. You need to think about these kind of things. These things need to be uh, material for your meditation. It will help you and me. Um, I never thought I had a fear problem until I understood what fear was. You know, fear is just an obsessive self-protection. And I never realized that until somebody gave me that definition because I always thought I'll stand up in a fight to anybody. I'm not taking nothing off of nobody. You know, that kind of thing. And then I realized one day, you big fake. You're terrified. <laughs> you struggle with fear. And so it really helped me to see that. So we actually can, it means we don't ask God to just take away our worry, but we meditate and pray in his wisdom. We should not just ask God for more confidence, but we should meditate and pray upon his grace and love. We should not ask God for more self-control, but we should meditate and pray in his holiness. We are to heal our hearts by praying the specific attributes of God into ourselves. Second, there is a connection uh, in their prayer of their ministry situation. And they go to Psalm 2 and remember David's words that the world leaders will be hostile to the Messiah. They then think of Herod and Pilate, of course, and what they did uh, in terms of the crucifixion. But then in verse 28, they realize that the rulers did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. 
This realization is an enormous source of power. The connection of their current situation with the Bible and with the sovereignty of God shows them that the murder of Jesus Christ did not display human power, but rather divine power. I have a quote here from David Peterson. It just, it just blessed my soul, as I used to say when I was a Baptist, but uh, I guess I can say it as a Presbyterian. <laughs> but it did bless my soul. He says this, In a time of threat, prayer can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforming the expected result. This rediscovery can keep God's witness faithful in spite of threats. God's never surprised. He's never uh, in heaven looking over the banister rail of heaven, looking down on earth going, oh my goodness, what are they doing? He's in control. Live it. Live in that world. Apply it. And it will minister deeply to your soul. Well, they came to realize through this process of prayer that the same court that killed Jesus Christ, that is the Sanhedrin, has now released them because everything is totally under God's control. They have nothing to worry about, whether they are killed or protected. Either way, God is going to love and honor and use them, and they're going to triumph with him. You can see, as they pray, the boldness and power growing. And third, this is the most remarkable thing about this prayer as I thought about it this week. They absolutely make no request for any kind of protection. They do not ask that their lives and families and wealth be protected. Now, that doesn't mean that that's improper. It just means it wasn't primary. Uh, but they're not the real problem here. They make just two requests. First, they ask for boldness to articulate the gospel message. Second, they ask for God to continue to show evidence that their message is his word through the signs and wonders. All the signs and wonders in the book of Acts are there to authenticate the messenger, that they are speaking the word of God. And so they continue to ask for their ministry, authentication. They ask not for miracles of vengeance on the rulers, but continued miracles of mercy as people are healed and converted. So here are the marks of their prayer. Number one, it's corporate. They prayed together. Number two, it was more absorbed in praise and worship to God for who he is than in our human requests and needs. Three, it was full of Scripture, using the promises and the Word of God to guide their prayers. Number four, it was a process. They came to realization and new unity as they prayed. God worked with them during the time of prayer, and it sought solely the uh, presence of glory, the glory of God, and not just a change in their circumstances. Well, let's move to the second point. How does verse 31 lead to verse 32? In what ways does the filling of the Holy Spirit and boldness relate later to the radical sharing of material possessions? Well, first, we need to understand and grasp that the basic mark of spirit-filledness is boldness as 431 tells us. Why is that? 
Well, if you'll read Pauline epistles like Romans 8, 15 through 16, there we are shown that the Spirit's work is to oppose a spirit of fear. If the Holy Spirit is the opposite of fearfulness, then the mark of a spirit-filled person would, of course, be fearlessness. But specifically, how does the Holy Spirit make you and I fearless? Romans 8, 15 to 16 tells us that the Spirit assures us, He witnesses to our spirit, that we are the children of God. In the same way, the Spirit assured and empowered Jesus for ministry at His baptism when He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Once you understand the gospel, you know that applies not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it applies to you and me. Why? Because we're in union with Him. We are organically connected to Him by faith. And what God says about His Son is true. He is well pleased with us. He hasn't called us to a slavery into fear, but rather liberty and life. And so one of the marks of that is the assurance of salvation. This then is the nature of spirit boldness and deep assurance of the Father's love for us personally through Christ. Do you know that? Do you have a deep assurance that God is for you? Do you have a deep assurance that he loves you, crazy about you, beyond your wildest dreams? And you say, well, Pastor, I can't believe that because... Uh, I, I, I'm a horrible person. I told my wife yesterday I was a horrible person. She didn't disagree with me. That's what bothered me. We were having a little disagreement. Of course, she was right and I was wrong. And I said, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm a horrible person. She didn't debate it. You see, but here's what I know. I'm horrible, but man, am I loved. And his love to me is not based upon how unhorrible I am or how virtuous I am, or how moral I am. His love to me is, comes out of his heart for his son. And because I'm in his son, I enjoy that kind of grace and love. And that's where boldness comes from. That's what makes fear disappear. Second, we have to see that there were not just one but two forms that this spirit boldness demonstrated itself in the life of the early church. First, we see a boldness in word. We see in verse 31, despite the threat of official persecution, you remember back in the last chapter, they had been jailed by the Sanhedrin, brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus or mentioned the resurrection or those things, and then were released. And, of course, they said, we must obey God rather than man. They came out, and what did they do? They went right back to the people of God, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Despite the threat of official persecution, they preached the gospel boldly. They were not afraid of the risk involved with speaking. Such risk could include social marginalization, imprisonment, even death. But notice also, and we're getting into point three in case you're counting. Notice also that there was boldness indeed. There was a word and deed boldness. It wasn't merely the preaching. My mother used to tell me after she would hear me preach, she used to say to me, Son, 
you really sound good up there talking, but I, I bet you don't live like, like you preach. I said, well, of course not. I'm your son. How could I? <laughs> but long story short is it's struggle. It's a struggle there. But there was a boldness here also, not just in proclaiming the Word of God with power and courage, but there was boldness indeed. We see it in verses 32 to 36. Though usually the connection between 31 and these verses is missed, uh, Luke wrote his material. You know there were no chapter headings or divisions. That comes later. Luke clearly sees the lifestyle of radical generosity and sharing of wealth as proceeding from the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked a lot about possessions and a lot about money. And this sheds much light on how the Bible sees our attitude toward possessions. A lack of generosity is not caused so much by just being a Scrooge or a stingy person, but rather a lifestyle or a lack of generosity is caused by fearfulness. The more the Christians were assured of God's love for them, the more spiritually secure and confident and fearless they became in that assurance, the more generous they became. They opened their homes and their purses to one another. And it's extremely important insight here. I recognize that most churches, most people don't even come close to the biblical guideline of giving a tithe. But the main reason is usually a lack of courage. The early church was not afraid of the risk involved in this kind of giving. And the risks include a lack of a personal financial cushion. Now this is radical. Uh, for your own emergencies, the possibility of your gifts being used improperly or at least ineffectively, and less disposable income for our own comforts and pleasures. So the generosity and sharing of verse 32 is directly caused by the infilling of the Holy Spirit in verse 31. In fact, we can see verse 32 as a sign of the fullness of the Spirit. Now, when I was uh, early into things in the 70s. Uh, I was a preacher in 1978, and I had several charismatic friends. And my charismatic friends, who were dear people to me, I loved them. Uh, they loved Jesus, no doubt about it. We had different theology, but I needed fellowship with somebody, and they were the only one, <laughs> ones that I could connect with. And what I loved about them was their heart and zeal for the Lord. But they would say the mark of the Holy Spirit, of being really filled by the Holy Spirit, is what? Speaking in tongues. You all heard that joke, hadn't you, where a guy comes to a Bible study and they say, uh, we're going to pray now and ask for the gift of tongues. And so the guy goes, okay. He said, what kind of car do you drive? He said, a Honda. Here, repeat after me. Shonda de la Honda. Shonda de la Honda. A lot of people faked it. <laughs> Some people may have really felt like they were doing it. And I don't want to make fun of people's experiences, though it is funny. But that is not a mark of... That's, if you can do it that way, that's so shallow. Let me put it that way. And, uh, and so spirit-filled life is boldness both in word and deed. Now some people look at this and say, well, what's going on in the New Testament is a form of communism. And they point out with this either pleasure or distress 
uh, depending on their politics. They point out that verse 32 says they did not call anything their own, but, but this really refers to an attitude, not a legal or even an ecclesiastical regulation. It means that each person's heart became so generous that he or she thought of the whole church as having a claim on their personal wealth that God had given to him or her. Once you understand you're a steward, it's not your stuff, it's a little easier to give. It doesn't mean that church members are surrendered all their funds into a common pool automatically. There were major gifts given from time to time, where, uh, but as we will see in the next chapter, this was also misused and abused. So there wasn't any kind of communism, there wasn't any kind of socialism at all in this, and what drove people to do this was love and the grace of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 33 tells us, it speaks of the great power of the apostles' preaching. Christ's resurrection follows immediately upon verse 32 of the statement of economic sharing and is followed still by a description of the early church's generosity. Why does Luke insert this statement about word witness in the midst of the description of the church's communal life? Luke is saying that the power of the apostles' preaching was both backed by and enhanced by the practical sharing of the Christian community. Was it not the Apostle John who says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you what? Love one another, that you give to one another, that you're connected with one another, that you're a family, you're the body of Christ. And so... What we see here is that the gospel creates and enhances practical sharing in the community, the sharing of love. Uh, in other words, the apostles talked about the power of Christ's resurrection with arguments and evidences while the community embodied and demonstrated the reality of Christ's resurrection with the newness of heart, life, and relationships. So much so much, so much of what we see is one side or the other. People focus on word ministries or people focus on deed ministries. There's a lot of concern these days about social justice and about the idea of the church having a major role in trying to deal with these issues that come up from time to time. On the other hand, there are groups who you know, believe in the spirituality of the church and has no connection to the culture, and they emphasize word ministries. But your word ministry ain't right if it doesn't create a heart ready to reach out and give to the broken and the lost. That's as simply as I can put it. You don't get the gospel yet because the word of God, we, we are told here, spread. It spread uh, throughout the church. Um, we're going to see more of this in chapter 6 but the relationship and this is my closing remark the relationship between word and deed is therefore extremely close and it works both ways on the one hand the preaching of the word produces faith faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God 
which in turn produces good works that are foreordained for us. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. If you're not doing good works, you better look. On the one hand, the preaching of the word produces faith, which in turn produces good deeds toward people in need. James chapter 2 talks all about that. Since the gospel of salvation through grace alone humbles us and makes us kind and compassionate toward the poor. It always bothered me as a Christian. You know, as a Christian, you can be just as self-centered as anybody else. And your doctrine of sanctification can be just as self-centered as any other selfish centered person it has to be christ-centered but what dawned on me one day i i went to louisiana when i was raising uh funds to plant a church there and i remember that i was gathered in a church it might have been a hundred people there or so and so it was my time to speak and i talked about all this grand vision i had all these plans i had about what i was going to do for the lord and how i'd been trained for church planting i'd planted this church here now i wanted to plant another one down there near new orleans and so i was sitting and there was this elderly lady like sitting right there and i couldn't read her face by the way it's good to see you here because i still can't read your face because it's mostly covered but i could not read her face but i knew something was in her craw and so we prayed and ended the whole session and i looked at her and she looked at me she finally came up and she said young man and i was young then i realize it now i was young and she said young man sounds like you have some marvelous plans there and she said i really hope and pray that god will do that he, she said but when I listened to you, you know what I didn't hear? I didn't hear an ounce of compassion. Not an ounce of compassion. You were all about you and what you were going to do, but I didn't see any compassion. And I have to tell you, she was right. And it hurt me. It hurt me. I drove all the way home just sick. And I remember thinking to myself, why, am I not, why do I not have more compassion? than that and then I realized there's a connection between seeing the compassion of God toward us rebellious hostile broken sinners that melts the heart and causes us to have compassion for other broken sinners which causes us to get out of ourselves Luther said we are in curvatus in say curved in upon ourselves that's the fall but the gospel and redemption is curving us out to minister to others. So that is the word of God to us today. I do pray that God will. By the way, people talk about having a balanced ministry. That's sort of a self-obsessive word, balance. Like I know what balance is. The only person who knows what balance is and can produce it is the Holy Spirit. But we do want to have a church in this community. This community cries out for a church that has both word and deed ministry. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture. I thank you for how it has worked on me all week. And I pray that you would do your work in our hearts that would produce fruit that would redound to the glory of the Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name.